Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. All right, let's pick up right where we left off last week in episode 155, talking about how two bands had their singers die, both in the year 1980, only to go on to achieve far greater successes. Last week, we talked about Joy Division slash New Order being one of those bands. The second should really come as no surprise. It's ACDC. In 1980, ACDC began work on their seventh studio album. On February 19, 1980, ACDC singer Bon Scott had been out in the town all night in London. The initial story went that Scott and someone named Alastair Kinnear were driving back to Kinnear's apartment to sleep it off, but Scott had already allegedly passed out in the car on the way. Kinnear would later state that upon arriving in his apartment, he was unable to wake Scott up and get him out of his car and into his home, so he left him in the car overnight, assuming he would wake up at some point and come inside. By the next morning, he did not, and Kinnear assumed that he found his way home. Scott was found by Kinnear still lying in the car in the early evening of the following day, and Kinnear rushed him to the nearest hospital, where Scott was pronounced dead on arrival. The cause of death was recorded as pulmonary aspiration of vomit, resulting from acute alcohol poisoning. Now, a book came out in 2017 called Bon, The Last Highway. It was by Jesse Fink, and it addressed a number of inconsistencies in the official count of Scott's death, detailing his activities in London before and also on the day that he died. Fink contends in the book that Scott didn't die from alcohol poisoning or from inhaling his own vomit, but rather from a heroin overdose. Fink also contends that Scott was not alone with Kinnear and that they were joined by at least two other people when they went back to Kinnear's apartment in East Dulwich. The death of Bon Scott has always had this kind of shroud of mystery surrounding it, including a conspiracy theory that Alastair Kinnear didn't even exist. Fink's book debunks that theory by actually publishing Kinnear's official 2015 death certificate, as issued by a Spanish court of law. Following Scott's death, ACDC was devastated, and they considered folding the band. But friends and family, particularly Scott's parents, who told the band that Scott would have wanted them to carry on, encouraged the other members to continue. They decided that they would go ahead, and they eventually set about finding a new singer. There were, of course, based on the commercial breakthrough of their previous record, 1979's Highway to Hell, many applicants for the position. And there are a couple of notables in the group, too. Stevie Wright from the Easy Beats. But there are also a couple of other noteworthy contenders, like Moxie's Buzz Shearman and Slade singer Naughty Holter. Mega producer Mutt Lang offered the band a suggestion and somebody who had previously sang in a band called Geordie. His name was Brian Johnson. Johnson impressed everyone in the band with renditions of Whole Lot of Rosie and Ike and Tina Turner's Nutbush City Limits in his audition. They thanked him for his time, sent him on his way, and got to work through the long list of other candidates over the days that would follow. But after that list was exhausted, Johnson was called back for a second rehearsal. There's a story that goes that it had actually been Bon Scott himself who had inadvertently recommended Brian Johnson as his replacement. Angus Young would say years later that the first time he heard of Johnson was actually from Scott. Scott had told Young about a singer he encountered in England 
while in a previous band and called him a pure rock and roll singer who reminded Scott of Little Richard, who was a singer that Scott had always admired. Angus Young would go on to say that he and his brother Malcolm actually recalled that conversation after Scott's death and made a point of actually trying to seek him out. It was Malcolm Young that would call Brian Johnson on March 29, 1980, to offer him the role as the band's singer, and apparently Johnson couldn't believe it, mostly because he didn't sound anything like Scott. However, out of respect for Scott, the band was looking for a singer who wouldn't be looked upon as simply a clone or an imitator of Scott's. ACDC really liked Johnson's love of classic soul and blues, along with the sound of his voice, and they also loved his attitude. He had a big, engaging personality. So, on April 1, 1980, it would be announced that Brian Johnson was officially the new lead singer of ACDC. With this bit of business out of the way now, the band got back to working on their next record. After the songs were completed, rehearsals for Back in Black were initially slated to take place in the UK, but Compass Point Studios in Nassau became available, and while the band wanted to record in the UK, doing so in the Bahamas offered significant tax advantages. The recording of Back in Black began around mid-April and ran through May with producer Mutt Lang. New singer Johnson was very anxious during this time and had some difficulty adjusting to the environment in Nassau. The tropical storms actually influencing the opening lines of his lyrics for Hell's Bells, rolling thunder, pouring rain, hurricane, and their link to hell were apparently a byproduct of Johnson's discomfort on the island. It's been said in the past that none of Bon Scott's lyrics were used on the album, as the group didn't want to seem as though they could be profiting from his passing. However, Jesse Fink did claim in that book I mentioned earlier that Scott did actually contribute to lyrics that do appear on the record, but that he's uncredited for his contribution. With respect to the singing of the lyrics, producer Lang focused very sharply on Johnson's vocals and apparently was a bit of a perfectionist. Lang insisted that Johnson sing lines over and over and over again and was very demanding of Johnson during the sessions. Lang wanted the very best from Johnson and he was very critical of his performance right down to his breathing and where his breaths would be taken in the lyrical phrasings, frustrating Johnson to no end. The band talked about the inclusion of a bell on the record, and towards the end of the sessions, the band tried to record the bells of a local church. The problem was that every time they tried to record the bells being struck, a huge group of birds would fly away from the bells, and that was also recorded. ACDC's manager Ian Jeffrey finally acquired a bell from a foundry and recorded it separately using a mobile studio. Those recordings were combined with the Compass Point tapes at Electric Lady Studios in New York City, where Back in Black would now be mixed. The final product would be released on July 25, 1980, and Back in Black would go on to sell more than 50 million copies worldwide making it the highest-selling album by any band ever. The album was meant to be released with an all-black cover, meant to reference the band's mourning of their departed former singer. That idea was initially rejected by ACDC's label, Atlantic Records, until the band conceded by agreeing to outline the band logo on the cover in grey. Back in Black is one of the most influential hard rock records ever 
made. Lang, who would of course go on to produce massive hits for Duff Leppard, Shania Twain, and a number of others, ensured Back in Black would have an enduring impact in the music industry. It's still considered to this day to be the ultimate template of how a hard rock record should sound. Chad Kruger listened to the record over and over again, trying to unlock the secrets of its success before Nickelback was to record one of their own albums. Studios still use Back in Black to check the acoustics of a room, and for years, Motorhead used Back in Black to tune their sound system. A lot of people call Back in Black a heavy metal record, ranking it among other metal records in magazine polls, etc., etc. But in my opinion, it's not a metal record. It's just very much a straight-up hard rock, heavy blues rock record. Because of the sinister visual presentation, the album title, and maybe some of the lyrical content, I can see why some people are tempted to label it as a metal record. But it's not, in the same way that Van Halen or Led Zeppelin were never really heavy metal bands. And this is interesting. People also claim that there were backward messages on Back in Black that proved the band's allegiance to Satan. Two messages could apparently be heard while spinning the record backward during the Hell's Bells and Back in Black tracks, reportedly saying, Satan has me prisoner, free me, free me. And Satan helped me and he saved my life. Hail Satan, hail Satan. I actually spun the record backwards myself at the points claimed to contain the messages. And, you know, if you do it enough times, I suppose that you'll hear whatever it is that you're listening for. Later in 1980, following the loss of Bon Scott and a handful of others, we would lose two more rock greats, both named John, Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham, and Beatles icon John Lennon. John Bonham really did have it all as a drummer. Power, speed, a distinctive feel for groove, and a sound that was all his own. He's considered one of the most talented, most influential rock drummers in all of history. Dave Grohl, Chad Smith, Dave Lombardo, and Mike Portnoy, and so many others all look to him as an influence. In its 2016 list of the 100 greatest drummers of all time, Rolling Stone magazine ranked John Bonham number one. Bonham was also an absolute wild man. His school principal said in his report card that he would end up either a garbage man or a millionaire. Before he joined Zeppelin, Bonham would play with singer Robert Plant in two pre-Zeppelin bands, The Crawling Kingsnakes and Band of Joy. After Plant was recruited by Jimmy Page, after he left the Yardbirds and was looking to form the new Yardbirds, or Led Zeppelin, Plant suggested Bonham as a drummer. Page saw him perform, and he was convinced that he was the drummer that he wanted. And so he, Robert Plant, and manager Peter Grant proceeded to send a total of 48 telegrams to the pub where Bonham hung out. Bonham was initially reluctant because he was also being courted by Joe Cocker with a more lucrative offer. Eventually, he did join Zeppelin because he liked the music better than Cocker's. Bonham used the heaviest, longest drumsticks, and he called them trees. He was known for being a really hard hitter, sometimes even playing with his hands. The title of Zeppelin's song, Four Sticks, comes from the fact that he actually used four drumsticks on the track, two in each hand. During the recording of Led Zeppelin's debut record, Bonham used a double bass drum on a demo of Communication Breakdown, which Page later scrapped 
because he thought Bonham overdid it. Later on in Zeppelin's career, Bonham demonstrated his range by infusing funk signatures and Latin-influenced accents in to his playing of songs like Fool in the Rain and Royal Orleans. On September 24, 1980, Led Zeppelin employee Rex King was dispatched to pick up Bonham for rehearsals for their first tour of North America since 1977. The tour would begin in Montreal on October 17. During the drive, Bonham requested the King stop so that they could have breakfast. During this meal, Bonham consumed four quadruple vodka screwdrivers, or 16 shots of vodka with some orange juice for color. And he kept drinking after they got to rehearsal. Later in the evening, the band finished rehearsing and decided to go over to Paige's house. Sometime around midnight, Bonham fell asleep. Someone took him to the bedroom and made sure to place him on his side. The following afternoon, Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones found him unresponsive, and Bonham was later pronounced dead at 32 years old. The coroner's inquest later found that within a 24-hour span, Bonham had consumed approximately 40 shots, or one and a half liters, of 40% vodka. In his sleep, he vomited and choked in the same way that Bon Scott was thought to have died, from pulmonary aspiration. The subsequent autopsy found no other traces of drugs in Bonham's body, though he was recovering from an addiction to heroin and was on depression and anxiety medication at the time of his death. He was cremated and his ashes interred in his hometown of Worcestershire on October 12, 1980. Around that same time, in October 1980, John Lennon would return to the limelight that he had avoided for the previous five years by releasing the single, Just Like Starting Over. In November, he would release Double Fantasy, which was mostly comprised of songs that he had written during the summer of 1980, which he spent in Bermuda with Yoko Ono and their son Sean. The music was representative of Lennon's newfound stability and general happiness with where he was in his life finally. The following month, on December 8, 1980, John Lennon would be shot to death outside his apartment building in New York City just before 11 p.m. The single, Just Like Starting Over, would subsequently go to number one in several countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom. On December 14, more than 100,000 mourners attended a public vigil for John Lennon in Central Park. There was a moment of silence at 2 p.m. that lasted for 10 minutes. Lennon's murderer, Mark David Chapman, was a 25-year-old drifter raised in Georgia, and he'd previously been a Beatles fan, but he grew to resent Lennon's public statements, like the one Lennon made about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus. Chapman developed a number of obsessions as a teen, including Todd Rundgren and The Catcher in the Rye. He considered killing other public figures, Johnny Carson, Jackie Onassis, Liz Taylor, Lennon's former bandmate Paul McCartney were all on his list. At the time of the murder of Lennon, Chapman didn't have a criminal record, and he had just left a security guard job in Hawaii. While Chapman was in Hawaii, he tried to kill himself by inhaling carbon monoxide, but failed to connect the hose correctly to his car's exhaust pipe. He was hospitalized for depression in Hawaii shortly after, but by September 1980, 
he had left the hospital, and his obsessions now included John Lennon. He wrote a letter to a friend in which he advised that he thought he was going insane, and he signed the letter, The Catcher in the Rye. Chapman had gone to New York City in 1980 intending to kill Lennon then, but claimed to have been inspired by the film Ordinary People to stop his plans. He returned to Hawaii and told his wife that he had been obsessed with killing Lennon. Chapman showed her the loaded gun, but she didn't inform the police or mental health services. He scheduled an appointment with a psychologist, but blew it off and instead flew back to New York on December 6, 1980. While he was there, he considered suicide by jumping off of the Statue of Liberty. The day before the murder, Chapman accosted singer James Taylor at the 72nd Street subway station, pinning him to the wall and yelling at him about how John Lennon was interested in him and how they were going to spend time together. David Bowie was apparently also on Chapman's list. On the day of the murder, Bowie was appearing in the Broadway presentation of The Elephant Man, and Chapman had a front row ticket to that show the following night. John and Yoko also had tickets to that same show in the front row. Bowie said later how difficult it was to look at those three empty seats during the performance after he found out what happened, wondering if he could actually even finish the performance. On the morning of December 8, Chapman left his hotel room, intentionally leaving items behind that he wanted the police to find. Among those was a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, in which he wrote, This is my statement, and he signed it, Holden Caulfield. He spent most of the day hanging around Lennon's apartment, the Dakota, chatting with the doorman and other people who were there. While he was there, he met Lennon's housekeeper, who had taken Lennon's five-year-old son, Sean, for a walk. Chapman reached around the housekeeper and grabbed Sean's hand, saying to her that he was a beautiful boy, in reference to Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy. Around 5 o'clock, as Lennon and Yoko Ono left the Dakota for Record Plant Studios, they were approached by Chapman, who asked Lennon to sign a copy of the Double Fantasy record. That famous photo that you've probably seen of the event was taken by a guy named Paul Goresh, an amateur photographer who just happened to be there at the time. Chapman said later that he tried to get Goresh to stay, but he declined. Chapman said later that he would not have murdered Lennon that evening if Goresh had stayed, but that he probably would have tried again at some other time. Around 10.50 p.m., Lennon and Ono returned to the Dakota. They got out of the limousine and walked by Chapman towards the Dakota entrance. From behind them, Chapman fired five rounds, four of which would hit Lennon in the back and the shoulder. Chapman remained at the scene after the shooting and appeared to be quietly reading The Catcher in the Rye when police arrived, and he was arrested without incident. Lennon's wounds were so severe that they rushed him to the hospital in a squad car that didn't wait for the ambulance, but on arrival, Lennon was pronounced dead. A little while after that, Chapman said this to the police, I'm sure the big part of me is Holden Caulfield who is the main person in Catcher in the Rye. The small part of me must be the devil. Chapman was charged with second-degree murder for Lennon's death. 
He said to police that he had used hollow-point bullets purposely to ensure Lennon's death. At his initial hearing in January 1981, Chapman was instructed to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity by his lawyer. Chapman instead insisted on pleading guilty, saying that God told him to do so. At his sentencing hearing in August 1981, Chapman was asked if he had anything to say. He rose and read a passage from The Catcher in the Rye. The judge ordered psychiatric treatment for Chapman during his incarceration and sentenced him to 20 years to life, five years less than the 25-year maximum. In 2018, Chapman was denied parole for the 10th time, the parole board claiming that Chapman admitted to carefully planning and executing the murder of a celebrity in order to gain notoriety, demonstrating a callous regard for the sanctity of human life and for the pain and suffering of others. Chapman's 11th parole hearing is scheduled for August 2020. All right, that concludes our look at some of the events and happenings that shaped the year 1980. We're going to tackle the rest of the 80s in future episodes. I hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury. I'm Brent Jensen. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.